Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today I have a very special guest. Of course, all of my guests are special, but this guest shares very much the same joy of money that I do, or at least a similar joy of money especially when it comes to talking to women about financial resilience and financial literacy. And I'm talking about Julia Newbold, who is one of the authors of The Joy of Money. Welcome, Julia. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you tonight. Thank you so much. Julia has around 20 years of experience writing about finance. She's written about many things. She's currently the managing editor at Money Magazine, where I know her because I do some writing from time to time, especially for their digital platform. And she has specialized in writing in topics such as superannuation, wraps and platforms, and self-managed super funds. She is also one of the co-founders of the Stellar Network, which is aimed at improving or being more inclusive for women in the financial planning sector. I think that's hopefully an okay description. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. Yeah, the Stella Network was set up to get more women into financial planning. The idea being that if a lot of Australians weren't getting advice, maybe it was because the people advising them weren't like them and there was no relationship formed. The idea was to get more women in and have a more diverse planning force to encourage more people to seek advice. That makes sense because some women do feel that when they do ask for financial advice, particularly if it's from a man that they're not always listened to. I know particularly in banking, this whole concept of gender lens investing and gender lens finance is becoming more popular. And I, I, I assume it's the same with the financial planning industry, is it? Yeah, absolutely. And just the things that women will think of for other women where it might be things like IVF that a man might not decide to venture into that topic and so on. Yeah, that's a big one because IVF is so expensive. I myself had fertility treatments for some time before I had my first child, who actually came naturally in the end. It's weird how that happens. But it's sometimes that people think of that as a luxury rather than realising that for many people it is a real issue, especially women who have things like endometriosis or other, other issues. Absolutely. So how did you get into writing about personal finance to start with? Well, it's a bit of a round trip. I did economics at university because I really wanted to be a stockbroker. And in those days, a long time ago, there were chalkies and it was very vibrant on the floor of the stock exchange. And so I went and did my work experience there and I used to spend holidays watching. It was really exciting. But after I did my degree, I realised I didn't really want to be in that environment. I didn't really like the the people that I'd studied with, it just wasn't my fit. And so I wanted to go and do the job that I found the most exciting there, which was actually the communications role, the PR person. So I applied for a lot of PR roles and all of them said, you need to get some writing experience. So I did. I went and did a cadetship at the local paper and I covered all rounds. And then I started editing a couple of trade magazines in travel and food And then that made me want to actually travel. So I quit my job, travelled. And when I came (laughs) back, the jobs that I got were in the finance writing. And no one wanted to do that at the time. And I did and I could. So, you know, that's where the jobs were and that's where I've stayed because I enjoy doing it. I enjoy translating for people who find the jargon just too exclusive. Yeah, how times have changed. 
I don't know whether to share this or not, but I think I will. When I was on posting to Taiwan, we would, some of us would have magazines that we'd subscribe to from Australia that we would get sent. And we would often pass them around the office so that people could, you know, read a little bit of news about what was happening from home. Delicious Magazine was always very popular. Women's Weekly was always very popular. And I really treasured my copy of Money Magazine. And when I finished reading it, I used to offer it to others in the office. Strangely, there weren't that many takers. And I was always a bit mystified about this. I was like, well, why wouldn't you want to read about making more money? Like, what are you going to work for if you're not to earn money? This is the strangest thing. But of course, now that times have changed considerably and we've seen, I think the Barefoot Investors had, what, 2 million books sold now? The appetite in Australia for financial literacy has really changed, hasn't it? It really has. And I think that has been the biggest change in my time. It used to be that no one would talk finance. You wouldn't be at a barbecue and people would be talking about their superannuation funds or what they'd invested in. They wouldn't be talking about stocks. You know, obviously there were the runs of the mining stocks and so on that, you know, might get some attention. But basically it just wasn't a topic that people discussed. You know, you might talk property but not in the how to finance it kind of way. But now it's become so mainstream and all the newspapers have got their own dedicated money sections. Yeah, and it's a lot more approachable too. I'm thinking back in the early times when I was interested in investing too, it was quite hard to digest. And I sort of also felt that, you know, as a young woman, it wasn't really that accessible to me. You sort of felt a bit awkward to have that sort of interest. Absolutely. And, you know, I remember in the early days and I'd go to events and I would be one of the only women there and the men would actually physically talk over my head. (laughs) My goodness. You know, a lot of them aren't as well educated in the subject and yet they think just because of my gender that I wouldn't understand finance and investing and stuff. It was quite offensive in those days, I have to say. Wow. Did you get mansplained as well on finance? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Crazy. And, of course, as you know, the research consistently shows that women make better investors. They don't invest as much as men do or as often, but when they do, they're much better at it. Yeah. From working a long time with financial planners, there's been such a difference in the approach because they've realised that they have to talk to women, even if it's just widows of the clients that they actually paid attention to. To keep that money, they've got to appeal to the other gender, and that's been quite fascinating. I read somewhere, and I'm not sure where, and I'm sure you probably know more about this than me, that often widows do actually change financial planners. There's sort of an assumption that their financial planner has that they've always been dealing with the husband and perhaps never the wife and that things will just continue and they rarely do. That's right. It's very high, the number that actually moves and because of that exact reason. You've probably been feeling frustrated for so many years and then you've got the opportunity to be out, you're out. (laughs) Well, the opportunity to be heard if you're not feeling yeah. listened to or you're not feeling like your questions are being answered. Like, you know, why would you stay with someone that you're paying to deliver a service and they're not really servicing you? And what we found with writing the book, The Joy of Money, is that women think about money in a very different way to men in that, you know, men can have these discussions about finance and investments and so on as discrete subjects, but women don't really have those discussions. Mm. When we talk about money, it's more in collaboration with our whole lives. We're looking at what we're able to do with the money, what lifestyle we're able to achieve, how we're able to help the kids or whatever it is. So it's a very different mindset that you have to um, plug into and that's what we really found different in putting our book together. It wasn't good enough just to talk the financial topics. We had to talk about values and goals and that was really important. 
before starting, which is what a planner does or should do. Well, should do. That's a very good point. But usually in the old days, planners were just about just thinking of it like a a maths game, like just a sum. And even some people in the fire community, especially some of the younger guys, they talk about just how it's a math problem. I'm saying without the yes, because it is often uh, US writers who say that. I think Mr. Money Mustache has the shockingly simple math kind of blog posts that went viral. Well, those family equations just aren't taken into account in any of those maths, are they? No, but I think it's interesting. And I think if that's how someone else gets into it, that's fine. But we're all not the same. Yeah. There was one financial planner I used to talk to quite a bit. And she used to say that if her clients came in, she had a new client that came in and they didn't have a will. She wanted them to do that first because she said that really defined what their values were. And it's quite interesting because when you think about it, it is like what do you want to leave your legacy to and whether it's your children or your family or whoever's important in your life or it's some organisation or something else that you have a passion for. I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at things. Yeah, it is. You're right. It does show your values because who you're willing to leave your money to when you go on shows what you care about or at least how, how you place those priorities. And it might be hard to actually think about that beforehand. Like if someone just asks you the question of where your values are, you might not think of that. But that framing was, it really struck a chord and it stayed in my mind for a long time. <laughs> exactly. Now, going on to your book, you had quite an interesting foreword to your book. It's not the normal sort of person that most people would get to write a foreword for a book. That's right. We Julie Bishop wrote the foreword. And um, how that came about was Kate, um, my co-author, bumped into her at a conference and just told her what she was doing and asked her if she'd write one. And she did, and she did a great job of it. And it's very personal and it's her story and her thoughts about money. And, yeah, we were really happy to have that. Well, I had no idea that Julie Bishop had, had such a difficult childhood in a sense in terms of what had happened with the family farm. Yeah, Well, you know, everybody's got these stories and it's just a matter of uncovering them. And, you know, you look at what makes people the way that they are about money and that behavioural finance piece is really interesting. Mm, Yeah, mindset's so important. I've been doing quite a lot of work myself in terms of unpicking some of the scarcity mindset that I have. Now, you might think, well, Serena, you talk about um, savings, investing and your frugalist are like, what kind of scarcity mindset would you have? I'm probably much better at saving money sometimes than. It, it, that's more natural to me to save money and hoard it. To take bigger risks is less natural. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and sometimes that scarcity mindset can hold me back. Yeah. I mean, I can understand that. And we've all got some sort of scarcity mindset. Like when we had the toilet paper shortage. Yeah. I was like, what, doesn't everybody buy 36 packs? Like, <laughs> well, before it even became news, we were at Costco and we were down to our last eight rolls and we needed some particularly for an Airbnb I ran. We couldn't work out where it had gone. We thought it had moved and uh, my husband, Neil, went and asked people and they said, oh, no, no, we just there's more coming in, come back. Um, we just didn't know what had happened to it. We just thought they were having a store rearrangement. We, were, we weren't panicking. We were down to eight rolls. We weren't concerned for ourselves. We were more concerned about guests and having it for them because it's a bit awkward if you've got to say bring your own toilet paper. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, but definitely scarcity mindset can be very crippling. So what did prompt you and Kate McCullum to, to write the book? How did you come to this concept together to write it? So Kate and I used to meet at a lot of industry functions, like for financial planners and um, banking and and so on. 
And we had a lot of similar ideas. So we'd be very focused when it was topics about women and helping women and, you know, why women were holding themselves back or why they were held back. And so we'd see each other at a lot of these events and then we'd catch up for lunch and so on. And we'd talk about our friends and, you know, her clients and so on and some of the ideas that they had and what they didn't know. And we said, we should really write a book to help them. And we both sort of went, yep, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. And we, we just got on with it. And we took about probably a year to plan how we were going to set it up and what we wanted to include. And that, you know, we'd meet up every week and talk about it and put some ideas together. The writing itself was pretty quick in the end and it was quite seamless in how we divided it as well. Like we had all the chapters and sub-chapters, we'd we'd just say, I'll do that bit, you do that bit and, and, and so on, and then we'd go through each other's work and, you know, most of the bits I don't think you could tell which of us has has written it, you know, and we wanted to include a lot of um, case studies because the idea for us was that there's no right way or only one right way. If, you know, some people have done it this way, some people have done it that way, some people have this much in super, some people have outside investments outside of super, certain people might have more today because they haven't had maybe children or divorce or things that have happened to them. We just wanted to, I guess, have not necessarily role models, but just ideas that this is how real people have done it. And we also wanted to make sure that nobody felt guilty and, you know, we wanted people to feel like they could do something but not get caught up in, I wish I'd done this or Mm. I wish I'd done that earlier. It's just, well, you haven't because today is today. Whatever's (laughs) done in the past is past and you can't go back. So we really wanted to stress that please don't focus on anything that's happened in your past or what you think you've done or any mistakes you might have made, just get on with it. And I think as women we do overanalyze things and we think, oh, if only I'd started earlier, if only I'd put it in that investment, Mm -hmm. if only I had put more money in super at 20 or whatever it is. But we didn't, so, you know, (laughs) make the best of it. (laughs) That is so true because I guess I've probably made more mistakes than I have made positive things. But the, the point was that, you know, I made that commitment to my, my financial future. So it, it's come together. Oh, and, and I look at some of the mistakes I've made or things that I didn't know and I wanted to put them in the book so that other people didn't have to make the mistakes or go through their own experience of things that we could explain and things that are really complex like insurance just to get across how you do that. It's, it's tough. So any tips that we thought we could give that have helped us, we wanted to provide to people in the book. Yeah, because that's a hard one. You ring up, you know, your insurance company and they say, how much do you want to insure it for? And you're sort of thinking, I actually have no idea. It's like, what do you want to include in the insurance policy? I have no idea either. It's kind of a bit random sometimes. And that is the area I really think a, fi- a financial advisor can help the most because it is so complex and there's so many changes that go on in the industry that people who are not in the industry every day, we haven't kept up. We don't know which organisations are doing well at the moment and so on. So that's, if you go for anything, it would be for that area. Yeah, it makes sense because you're not working it. I mean, you, you don't know what other people are insuring their houses for or their contents. It's you, you don't often have an idea of this. Yeah, and that's another thing. We don't talk enough about money to share ideas. To say, oh, well, I did this, don't do that. That was a really bad idea. Or, you know, I've heard someone else has done this great thing or this place has got a discount this month or whatever it is. We just don't talk money enough. No, especially not women. I think it's changing a bit. Guys do a little bit, but it's interesting. I think it's sort of almost in a competitive space. Like I 
remember oh, many years ago, I think I know when it was, it was sort of on the cusp of the GFC, the, the global financial crisis. Property prices were down for a while and I was at a work thing, like after work drinks, and there was this guy sort of going, oh, I'm going to be the, he painted himself as an expert at property investing. And he was like, oh, I'm going to wait till the market does this and then I'm going to buy and I'm going to do this. And I was just listening to it because we just purchased, I think it was our fifth investment property and we were just about to exchange contracts. But I didn't say a word. And because I sort of felt in those days, and it's not even that long ago, like it was such a male thing to be investing, to be a property investor. It's just, you just didn't let on that you had knowledge like that. Well, when I actually went to my first house, I was gazumped on it. And I was working at the newspaper at that time and there was, you know, big subs call of all really misogynistic men and and you know, I got gazumped. They were all really happy about it because what? I think that it wasn't a woman's right to have a property on her own. I they, you know, <laughs> they weren't unhappy for me, that's for sure. Last time I looked at the statistics, and it's been a little while, but I think a year or so ago, it looked like there were more young single women purchasing properties than young single men. Uh, More young women are going into relationships when they've got a property and their partner doesn't, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, I think it is. And I think that's an area too where people need to get advice on how to make sure that, you know, they're set up properly, that if relationships don't work out, they've got what's theirs and you know for men as well but I think because people are going into relationships later they do have assets each of them so it's a very important area. Yeah look I I agree with you I've had girlfriends who have asked me for advice and even for not just to protect them like the guys have said well why should I really be paying your mortgage if I don't have a share in it as well like how's this going to work like how are we going to share assets it's it's not the traditional thing you think that the male provider buys the house without consulting his partner, carries her across the threshold. It doesn't really happen anymore. I don't know if it ever did. I think I was looking forward to that, but no, it never happened. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't happen for me. Anyway, so moving on, you've written a lot about superannuation. So let's maybe perhaps start and say, you know, why is superannuation so significant and so important? Well, it is significant because, as we always say, it's probably most people's biggest investment outside their own home. And it's got to keep us for a long time. As we're living longer and we're going to be presumably retired for longer, we need to have those funds built up. And the importance is while we can invest outside super, inside super is so much more tax effective. But it's such a difficult sell because I know when I was much younger, I knew that it was a good idea, but I never quite trusted that when I wanted it, it would be there. And, you know, the government has tweaked so many areas of it. I think now that it's more ingrained and it's there, I think it would be very hard to wind back. So I do have a lot more faith in it than I used to. But it is such a long way off for most people to want to put more money in. But Kate McCallum, who who co-authored the book, she's done some incredible research lately and she's worked out that If a woman at 20 saves $10 a day into super and their friend then contributes $20 a day at age 30 into their super, the woman at 20 will have more in super until they're both aged 59 just because of the benefits of compound interest. Mm. This, this is a hard one, isn't it? And Because we, we've seen obviously during COVID people had an opportunity to take money out of super 
It was a mass exodus. It was huge. Yeah, it was. And I spoke to someone on the weekend who has never really been particularly good with money. And he was saying that he'd taken the money out. I think it was just because the, you know, the door was left open and people thought, well, I can, so I will. And didn't really think about the long term. And I think that's unfortunate that people don't really understand the benefits of super. I'm hoping that because people did realise that it was their own money at last, that at least they will know that they do have super and how much they have in it. So I'm hoping it's worked to actually engage people a little bit more with super realising it is their own money. People didn't trust the system. I I actually felt quite shocked about that. Yeah, and and it is a real shame. But I think, you know, there were people obviously who needed that money and it was good to be able to access it. Mm. But it's also good to, you know, obviously you know what you're doing and you're very in touch with super, but a lot of people don't really (laughs) understand. And I think that that's, that's the unfortunate difficulty. And it was very easy. And it was very easy at the beginning and they didn't, you didn't have to prove anything at all. You just got your money. And people were, you know, doing all sorts of things with it. Hopefully it's given some engagement to people, but, um, yeah, and hopefully some people will put it back. And, you know, maybe the government should put some sort of ability to put back extra if you have that money. Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, I'm obviously an advocate for super because I know, you know, the sums really stack up for me and I wish I'd understood more about it further. But I'll be honest and say that there were times in my life, particularly where I was single parenting immediately in the aftermath of my divorce, where I didn't want to make additional repayments because I was focused more just building up an emergency fund just for contingencies because I just wasn't really quite sure what would happen. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You need the money for today. You know, that's your first priority. If you don't have money today, well, there's no point of having savings for the future. Exactly. And as you probably know, a lot, there's not a lot, but, you know, maybe some or maybe many. I haven't done a poll, but certainly there are some people in the FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early community, who don't like super for a number of reasons. I think partly because they want to retire early, so they don't want to wait until the preservation age when they can access their super. Also, too, people often think that they can get better returns themselves investing in things such as exchange-traded funds. And that's a big mistake, I think, for, for a lot of people, I think, thinking you can do it yourself when you're not fully committed to it. Sure, you probably can if you're going to pay as much attention as a professional, but chances are you're not or you're going to take holidays or you're going to do something else and you're not going to be so focused on it. I, I think that's a bit of a beware sign for me that if you think you can do it yourself, make sure that you're really ready to commit to actually spend the time to do it. So some super funds actually do almost run on an ETF or index fund type background. Not all of them do. What is the significance then of super versus a do-it-yourself ETF? I guess to have it within the super structure so that you get the tax benefits is the number one. If you're running it in an SMSF instead, if that's what you're saying is the alternative, There's a lot of obligations in running an SMSF and you've got to have a strategy and you've got to have it audited and you've got to have accountants and a bit of a misnomer to say it's a do-it-yourself, self-managed super fund (laughs) because you need all these professionals to help you. And they're quite expensive. So if you think you're saving money by doing it yourself, you've got to really do the sums and you possibly aren't. And if you have a lot of money, maybe it's more worthwhile if you can get some sort of discounts. But Mm. you've got to think about why are you doing that when you can, in a lot of the bigger funds, have a variety of investments anyway. I think it was very popular probably about 20, 30 years ago. I think it was a stage where people didn't perhaps have as much faith in some of the financial systems. 
And every time there's a downturn, people do think that they can manage the money better because they've seen a fall and they can't believe that they would have been so silly as to make it fall themselves. It's always been if you've got property or you've got some other collectibles, an SMSF is for you. But you've really got to think about it. Are those things really going to contribute in the best way within the environment? I guess property is one where people often gravitate to, but there are rules. You can't just have your house where you live and your super fund and just sort of use your super to fund it. It has to be done as an investment, I understand. That's right. And also I think it comes that if you're part of a group that everybody's got one, you want one too. (laughs) And I think that's, you know, part of a a warning as well. Yeah, well, I don't have my own self-managed super fund, so I'm, I'm okay there. So I have one final question, and that is, do you have a Frugalista tip to share? Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) We talk a lot in our book about conscious spending and the idea that whatever you spend, you have to get real joy and pleasure out of. And so if there are things that you don't really get joy from and you're spending money on them, really see if you can cut them out so that you can spend your money on things that you do enjoy. For me, it's clothes and accessories. I love them and I can't Marie Kondo myself out of what I have. <laughs> I'll, I'll take my lunch to work every day and I'll walk more and I'll catch public transport and, you know, there's things that don't matter to me as much. I think that that's how I cut it out. And also, if you're a bit of a shopaholic, which I can be, I always save first. I pay myself first. I put money out of my pay into a savings account and I don't touch it. It's only for savings and investments. And that to me is, you know, the most sensible thing I can do to fund the lifestyle I enjoy. Wow. Well, that sounds like some great tips there. And I'm laughing because I love my clothes shopping and I love my accessories. I'm a mad keen op shopper and I think I've mentioned this to you, but I'm working on or I've developed a website called The Joyful Fashionista so that it can be like a giant op shop and therefore reflect my love of, of quirky accessories and quirky clothing and, and different things. Mum was a fashion designer, so I kind of grew up around a lot of clothes. And while I don't think I will ever be a supermodel and I've never aspired to be one because, of course, I'm too short, so that makes me ineligible, not that I don't have the right body shape at all. <laughs> I still love nice pretty blingy things so thank you so much now where can people connect with you obviously they can read the money magazine which i highly recommend it's a really really good great resource for people who want to know about financial literacy yeah that is the best place to connect with me at the moment and we do have a joy of money website which we're sort of working out at the moment and i'll let you know as soon as we've got that happening Fabulous. So make sure you buy The Joy of Money and make sure you subscribe to Money Magazine as well. And please also subscribe or to this podcast. Press like. I always love comments. And you can hang out with me on the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group to talk about this and other comments. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody course sound has been by neil hadley